um, an unusual book in the Bible. Um, it's kind of surprising that that idea of God's faithfulness and His mercies being new every morning and, and all of that is actually taken from the book of Lamentations. And in the book of Lamentations, you have the prophet Jeremiah, who is basically experiencing the worst day of his life. I mean, he's watching a foreign army come in and just destroy his home city and his country in Jerusalem. And he's sitting there watching this whole thing unfold. And he's penning this lament, this gut-wrenching expression of sorrow over, over these events that are unfolding. And right in the middle of, of that lament are these words in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so you've got a guy whose world is literally falling apart in every way. His life will never be the same. Everything he has known and loved is getting ransacked. And yet, in the, in the midst of that, the only thing he can do is turn his attention to God's character and to his faithful, consistent, never-failing, steadfast love. And even in the midst of that, he knows that when he wakes up tomorrow morning, that despite what he has experienced, God's mercy will be new. It'll be fresh, and it'll be there for him to receive and to rejoice in, just like the sun, sun comes up every morning. And so that's a wonderful place to go in our meditation, regardless of circumstances, regardless of what's happening around us. There's a, there's a faithful God who is there, and his mercies are new every morning. So love that song and uh, that message. Um, and I'd encourage you to read the book of Lamentations. It's, it's hard, but man, right in the middle of it is that uh, unbelievable um, recognition of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. So, well, you can open up to Exodus chapter 5 this morning. That's where we're going to be, Exodus 5. <clears throat> the Bible makes it quite clear, really throughout the whole of Scripture, that Yahweh God, the God of the Israelites, is the only true God, and that He rules and reigns over everything with absolute sovereign authority. He is the king of the universe. There's so many verses that talk about this, but there are a couple I want to draw your attention to this morning. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Anything he wants to do, he is capable of doing and he can do. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, no matter where, no matter what, God is capable and can act on what he wants to do. He has all power and all authority. No one can resist his will and no one can overcome his power. And not only is he all powerful, but he will not share the rightful glory that he is due with anyone else. He will not share his praise with someone who is lesser than him. Isaiah 42, 8 says it like this, I am the Lord, which does that sound familiar? The book of Exodus, God's name, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. He does not share with someone who is not deserving of the honor and the praise and the glory that he deserves, nor my praise to carved idols. 
God has no rivals. I mean, there's no one that is his his equal. There's no one that is even close to his equal. No one can undo his power or authority. No one can alter his plans or his purposes. And all of that is true, but amazingly enough, that doesn't mean that there won't be attempts to alter his plans and purposes, that there won't be rivals and challenges to his position as universal sovereign. I mean, the Bible's filled with challenges to who God is, right? Very early on in the scriptures, in Genesis chapter 3, you have this serpent come on the scene who challenges God's word and challenges his character and his truthfulness. And then you've got God's image bearers who buy into that challenge and believe it and follow along with it. And ever since then, every single human being, except one, who has been born on this earth has been born wanting to buck against God's authority and resisting his authority and his will. We say things like, I don't like being told what to do. I want to be great. Maybe we would never verbalize this, but our hearts carry this posture, don't they? I want to be the one sitting on the throne of the universe. Well, of course, we'd never say that. But since I can't sit on the throne of the universe, then I'll just sit on the throne of my household and those closest to me and rule and reign over them and dominate them and make myself the center of this little universe as a petty tyrant king. That's what we do. And challenging God's position and his authority is the heart of sin. I mean, this defines sin for us. It's replacing the rightful king of the universe with myself, trying to usurp his position. And it's refusing to acknowledge that he has the authority over me or he has the the claim on my life as my creator and as God. And these sort of challenges to God's greatness fill the pages of Scripture. And for you and I, these sort of challenges to God's greatness fill the pages of our lives. I mean, we wake up nearly every day and in some way resist God's authority over us. The book of Exodus is going to show us over the next several chapters for sure, and we'll get introduced to this this morning, but it's going to show us what happens when someone sets himself up as a rival to God. When someone says, I don't want to listen to you, I am going to challenge your greatness and authority, and I actually think I might be equal or better than you are. And that's what we're going to see in the story of Pharaoh's resistance to God. He thinks he is more powerful. He challenges God's greatness. And as we look at this story today in Exodus 5.1 all the way through chapter 6 and verse 12, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground. But as we look into this story today, I think you and I are going to learn a lot about our own hearts and how to deal with and how to respond to a challenge to God's authority and position and greatness. And so if I could summarize this passage, I would say it this way. There will always be challenges to God's authority and greatness. There always will be. And we see an example of one of those challenges in this text. And then from that, our question is, okay, so what do we do with rivals to God's position, with challenges to his character and his greatness? What do we do with those as people who want to to acknowledge his greatness and want to follow him and worship him? 
How do we respond? I'm going to give you three ways this morning. Three ways to deal with challenges to God's greatness. And these are in Exodus 5.1 all the way through chapter 6 and verse 12. And I know it seems insane that we will cover that much ground and that you will be out of here before 2 o'clock, but we will, I promise. The first one of these ways to deal with challenges to God's greatness is to recognize them. I mean, you have to see them for what they are. Recognize challenges to God's greatness. So as you turn the page from chapter 4 into chapter 5, you have to remember what has happened at the end of chapter 4. Moses and Aaron have returned to Egypt, and they've presented what God has said to them to the the leaders of Israel, and the people have responded probably above and beyond their expectations. Look back in chapter 4 at verse 31. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. I mean, this is, this is great. If you're Moses and Aaron, Moses has been unsure about this whole thing, right? He's like, can, I, can somebody else go, Lord? He's been questioning it. And then he shows up, does the signs, and it goes beautifully well. The people believe, they worship. And so now the next logical step in this is Moses and Aaron have to go to Pharaoh. And so they get an audience with Pharaoh, and they go to him. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, Maybe you're reading this and thinking, well, that's not what God told him to say. He didn't say anything about a feast. And there is a certain amount of truth to that, but it really is the same idea. I mean, God had told them in chapter 4 to go to Pharaoh, look at chapter 4 and verse 23, and to say, let my son go that he may serve me. And so serving and worshiping God would have involved a feast of joy. It would entail that. And so This is just a little bit different of a way of presenting the idea to Pharaoh. But the point here is that they call him to obey God and to let let the people go. And you'll see, too, in verse 1, they use a very official introduction to what God has to say. Look there. It says, thus says the Lord. Right? I mean, this is a way of a prophet communicating that what I'm about to tell you is from a deity. This is from God. And so they say, thus says the Lord. And in fact, when they say this, they use God's name. Remember, God had told Moses in chapter 3, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Well, they use his name that they've been given here to communicate to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh responds in verse 2. Look there. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? He uses that same name that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. Now, ironically enough, this question, this first question that Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? This is like a heading over the next 10 chapters of the book of Exodus. I mean, this is the question that we're all going to answer. Who is the Lord? He is going to show us. And he's going to show Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is asking this question with cynicism and with sarcasm here. But he's going to find out the answer to this question in due time. He's going to know exactly who the Lord is. 
Look at the rest of the verse. He says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, will not let Israel go. I want you to to notice here in this verse that Pharaoh intuitively links together the knowledge of God, knowing who he is, having an awareness of him, with obedience to his authority. And then he says he doesn't know him, and so he's not going to obey him. I mean, what Pharaoh is essentially saying is, the God of the Hebrews is is not even great enough for me to have any awareness of him. I mean, he's like a a B-level celebrity in some, you know, movie that didn't do very well, and I don't even know about him, so, so why should I have to listen to him? I mean, that's essentially what Pharaoh is saying here. I don't know him, so why do I have to obey him? The other side of this is Pharaoh very much would have considered himself divine. He was a representative of the Egyptian gods. And so thinking of himself as deity, he's hearing about this other supposed deity and he's going, I don't know who he is. Why do I, as a god, have any accountability to this this other deity? And so Pharaoh is very much setting himself up as a rival to God. He's setting himself up in opposition to to Yahweh's authority. Now, to sort of bring this into our lives today, I think this is is helpful to see the connection between knowledge of God and obedience to God. To really know the Lord is to know him as the sovereign ruler of the universe. That is who he is. That's one of the most foundational qualities that we know of God from Scripture. He's the creator. He is the king. He's the ruler. And so to know him is to know that I am created by him and that I am accountable to him. As a creature, as one of his image bearers, I am accountable to him. And so when we claim to know God and then we live as if we're not accountable to him, what we're really living like is a practical atheist. I mean, essentially, we're saying God isn't real. He's not important enough for me to listen to him. He's not significant enough for me to have any accountability to him at all. Even Pharaoh here, I think, understands that if God is the true God and the creator and the highest of all the kings, then he must be obeyed. Then he has that authority and that power. But Pharaoh here resents the suggestion that he might be required to obey this other God, that he might have to submit to God's power and authority. And so he's going to buck against that and set himself up as the authority in opposition to God. How's he going to do that? Well, you'll see through the rest of this section, all the way down to verse 21, every action that Pharaoh does is Pharaoh asserting his authority over Israel and setting himself up as a rival to God's claim as the one true God. I mean, Moses and Aaron come right back at him in verse 3 and reassert God's authority. Look at it there in verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. I mean, they're saying God has the power to punish us if we don't obey him. 
So you should listen to him because of this power. And then Pharaoh's like, no way. He doesn't have any ruler reign over me. Look at verses four and five. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. Moses and Aaron in verse one report that God calls Israel my people. Right? Look back at verse 1. Let my people go. God is saying, and I have a rightful claim over them. And then here in verses 4 and 5, Pharaoh begins to act as if he has a rightful claim over Israel. You guys can't keep them away from their work. I require them to do these tasks. I have the authority over them. Pharaoh is acting like they're not God's people, but they're his people. And he really starts to flesh this out in verses 6 to 9. Look there. He implements this new policy and requires them to obey. Verse 6. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, which these would have been Egyptians of the people, and their foremen, the Israelites, who were sort of mediating between the taskmasters and then the, the workers. Here's what he says. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. He sees God's claim on Israel as nothing but a deceitful trick to try to get them out of his authority over them. Now, I don't need to go into probably a whole lot of cultural and historical background here on brickmaking for you to understand the implication of what's happening. If you have been worked to the max on second shift making bricks and you have barely been able to keep up with the quota that is required of you, and all along they have been providing the materials for you to get this work done, And then all of a sudden, they say, same quota, you have to gather your own materials. You can't do it. It's impossible. There is no way to keep up with this. And that's what Pharaoh is doing here. He's asserting his authority. You can see in verse 9, I want you to notice this. He says, let heavier work. That word work is the same root word that we just read back in chapter 4 where God says, let my son go that he may serve me, right? It's the same root word. And so what Pharaoh is saying is, I am going to increase their service because they serve me, not this God. They're mine and not his. I want you to notice in verse 10 how the taskmasters present this to the people. Look what they say. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. That's the exact same form that Moses and Aaron used to speak to Pharaoh. Look back at verse 1. Thus says the Lord. And so what the taskmasters are saying to the people of Israel is, a God has spoken. Your God, Pharaoh, has spoken and you are required to obey him. I mean, it's 
literally this section is setting up this rivalry between Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and between Yahweh. Now listen as this new policy comes into effect and Pharaoh asserts his authority and it goes probably just like you would expect it to go. Verse 10, so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. I mean, listen, gathering straw, it's not like there were fields of straw that they had to just go cut down. I mean, the straw would have been the leftover bits of crops that had been harvested. And there were clumps here and clumps there. And you had to go try to gather it together. And the wind would blow it across the flat plains and the desert here. And so it would be all over the place. And it was almost impossible for them to gather this up. That's what Pharaoh is telling them to do. Look at verse 12. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? I mean, obviously, this is pretty rough for the Israelites as a whole, but particularly the the foremen. They're the mediators, and they're responsible to make sure the quota is met, and now they got to send people out to gather straw, and when they don't have enough, they get beaten for it. These are impossible circumstances. But I want you to notice what the Israelites do. And this is actually kind of a, a sad response to this here. I mean, they have been in bondage to Pharaoh for so many generations, and they have gotten so used to serving him as their master that even though God has promised to deliver them, when these circumstances get difficult, who do they turn to? They don't turn to God. They turn to Pharaoh. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why did you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Look, I mean, three times in their response, they say, your servants. It's almost awkward. (laughs) They're like insisting that they belong to him and that they're his servants. Even though before they have cried out to God and God heard them and sent a deliverer to them who did these signs and promised to bring them out of the land, Now they cry out to Pharaoh, and their response is to go right back to him. Now in chapter 2, when they cry out, God says, I hear you. I'm going to relieve your burdens. I'm going to to send you and give you a land that is filled with milk and honey, and you're going to be my people, and you're going to have a good life serving me. And here they cry out to Pharaoh, and how does Pharaoh respond? Verse 17. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. I I have to draw the contrast here. And I hope you see this and feel the weight of this contrast, right? Serving sin and serving the wrong master 
is like this. It always wants more. Sin is never satisfied, and it creates the... It, exacerbates the burden and increases it and makes it worse and worse and it's miserable. And yet, we have a God who has promised to redeem us and to bring us into a good land in his presence and to dwell with him and to worship him in joy and satisfaction. And this book is going to make that contrast between those two masters so dramatic that it's impossible to miss. And I think I need that in my life, to know the difference between the two and to remember the difference, to keep that in mind all the time. When I am tempted to go back and cry out to a previous master, it's only going to end up like this. They're never going to satisfy and never bring joy and never ease the burden as Christ will. It'll always end up like the Israelites going back to Pharaoh. Look at verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And so they're frustrated, they're despondent, and they take it out on Moses and Aaron. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, this whole section, right? Let's sort of pull all this together. This whole section here, it should be quite clear from this section that Pharaoh does not know God and does not think that he is accountable to God as the creator and ruler of the world. And he is setting himself up as a rival and as a challenger to God. Now, let's bring that concept of a rival to God into our lives today because there have always been rivals to God's greatness and challenges to his authority and our worship of him. And we may not have a Pharaoh making us make bricks today, but our world is filled with rivals to God's greatness, to his character, challenges to his authority in our lives. I mean, look, you probably this morning have a little device that you slipped into your pocket or your purse this morning that has a, a little screen on it. And that little device demands your service to it. It calls for your attention and your love and your affection all the time. It wants to draw you in. It wants to soak up your energy and your thinking and your capacity to interact with people and study God's word. And it's not a stretch to say that that little device is like Pharaoh, demanding your service of it. I mean, there's so many other rival gods that are clamoring for our attention. We live in a day where politics is everything and everything is political. And there's not a, a segment of our lives that has not been made out to be political in some way. And the political landscape wants to draw you in and to, to, for you to serve it 
and to think about it all the time. And I'm not saying it's as Christians, we just completely withdraw. Don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. And we don't have anything to do with it. But it dominates our lives and demands our attention and our focus and our energy and saps us of anything that we can use in our lives to give to the Lord. Maybe you can think of other rivals to God's greatness and and challenges to his authority in our lives. I could probably list several more, but the point is that you and I have to become skilled at recognizing these challenges. They are there. They're all around us. They're internal to us. It's not just that all the badness is out there. It's in my heart. Often I want to give my time and affection to some other rival to God's greatness. His position as the authority and the ruler and the king. And so what I'm telling you this morning is to recognize those rivals, to see them for what they are. And once we recognize that something is challenging God's authority and greatness, then we have to move on to our second way to respond here. Oops, skipped over a quote. That's fine. Which is to resist the unbelief that those challenges cause. So recognize them and then resist the unbelief that those challenges cause. Now keep in mind, as we talked about this morning already, that at the end of chapter 4, when Moses and Aaron came to the people, they were met with belief and worship of God. Things were going beautifully. And so they probably assumed that they were going to sort of waltz right into Pharaoh's throne room and tell him what God had said and that he was going to let the people go with minimal resistance. They may not have articulated it that way, but that may have been what they're thinking. Well, obviously that doesn't happen. And things end up getting a lot worse for the Israelites. I mean, circumstances are are not good here. And so, with things going off the rails from Moses' perspective, and with the Israelite foremen, probably some of the same guys that had seen the signs and believed and worshipped God, with them angry at Moses and Aaron in verses 20 and 21, how does Moses respond? Verse 22 and 23. He goes straight to God and complains. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil or caused trouble to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You're going to see the same temptation down in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. The people respond in the same way to to circumstances. Verse 9 of chapter 6, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. The same attitude and the same perspective here. God's greatness and authority have been challenged. Circumstances are not ideal as a result of that challenge. They've gotten worse. And so Moses responds by accusing God of causing trouble and accusing God of not even being able to fulfill his promises. You can't even deliver these people, Lord. Now that seems really like a harsh response from Moses, I think. 
Good grief, Moses. I mean, you saw the burning bush. You saw these signs. How can you respond that way? But let's be honest. I mean, don't we do this very thing? We trust God initially, right? We find ourselves in chapter 4, verse 31. We believe and we worship. We hear what God has done. And we rejoice in it. And then circumstances get hard. And that's going to happen. God's greatness is challenged. Something puts in the back of our mind that, man, maybe God is not really in this. Or maybe God is not really capable of working this out. Or he doesn't want to. And our attention and our hearts turn away from God. And we start to buy into the challenge. And we we start to downplay God's greatness. And we start to think things like, well... God can't really work in this situation. He's sort, of, he's sort of distant. He's away. He's not really involved and interested in what's happening. He can't really save that close friend or relative. He's not going to provide for my family. So I get anxious about it. And the rival to God's greatness begins to challenge God and causes us to doubt his character. And we doubt his character, and because of circumstances, we start to think that maybe God really just exists for my comfort and ease. And he's not following through on that. And so I'm frustrated with him. This was supposed to be easy, Moses says. It's not supposed to be like this. Well, that's according to Moses' diagnosis of the situation. That's according to this challenge that Pharaoh has presented to God's greatness. This is a very common way of thinking. One author put it like this. The presumption that a good God never lets dangerous or harmful events happen to his people, false as it has always been, is a very old belief. And maybe you would never say it like this, and maybe I wouldn't, but man, it's there. When circumstances don't go well, I readily adopt this belief. I start to think, God God shouldn't be, this shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be this difficult. (laughs) Why is it like this? And so I I begin to doubt, and I, I lack belief in God's goodness and his greatness, and I'm not functionally living as if he is the king and he is the authority. And in that moment, I've now allowed the rival to win the day. And now I've turned my attention to the challenge, and I've let circumstances define my faith in God, rather than letting God's character define how I respond to circumstances. I've flipped this on its head. And I say things like, if God really loved me, he wouldn't let this happen. If God was really great, he could have stopped this. And so let me say to you today, if you're going through circumstances which are difficult, and I think probably everyone is, and if you're not today, you will be tomorrow. So if you're going through circumstances that are difficult, that are starting to chip away at your faith, right? That are undermining it, that are causing you to to think things like, God is causing me trouble. He's not really doing what he said he would do, just like Moses. If If you're going through that, resist the unbelief that challenges to God's character cause. I mean, it has been the testimony of so many believers, followers of Christ over the centuries who have gone through incredibly difficult things that they have said, looking back, 
at the time, I would not have chosen this. It was horrific. But now I look back and I go, man, where I'm at now, how God has worked in my heart, how he has changed me, the results that have happened, the people that have been saved, whatever. I look back and I go, I'm so thankful that God brought me through that. I'm so thankful that circumstances were less than ideal in my life. And the way I should have responded was to see that God was great and that he was in charge and he was overseeing my life and my circumstances. And so I would say resist that challenge to unbelief. And instead, spend some time focused on God's character, which is our third way here. Rest in God's supreme goodness and greatness. So really what you've got is a pretty simple process here, right? You recognize that there's a challenge to God's greatness, something that is setting itself up as a rival to who he is, and then you resist the unbelief that that challenge causes, and then you don't just resist, you don't just stiff-arm the unbelief, but you turn your attention from the challenge to God and to his character and to his supreme goodness. Now, I think God, in verse 1 of chapter 6, makes it quite clear to Israel that All of this difficulty, these circumstances, were part of his plan. Look at verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. God's like, okay, good. Things got worse. That's what I wanted to happen. Now. (laughs) Now we're ready, right? Now it's where it needs to be. And now my power and my mighty hand will be put on display like it never could have been before. I mean, if Moses and Aaron sort of waltz into Pharaoh's throne room and say, let my people go, and he's like, yeah, okay, that's fine, go ahead. God's power and glory are not put on display in the same way. The redemption is not as significant. So look what he says in verse 1. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, a mighty hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Pharaoh is obstinate. He is disobedient. He sees himself as a rival to God's greatness. And God will crush that rival in spectacular fashion. And he will make it clear that no challenge will stand to who he is. And he will glorify himself and he will save Israel in the process. And so if you're here today and there's something challenging your worship of God and your belief in his greatness and his character, whether that's something internal in your heart, something your heart's drawn to or something external, I think chapter 6 verses 2 through 8 present an, an amazing paradigm for how you rest in God's character. This is a paradigm for you and I to fight for faith. Faith does not always come easy, especially when circumstances are hard and uncomfortable. And so fight for faith and use these verses as a paradigm for that. Now, these are all God's speech to Moses, and this comes in two parts. Verses 3 through 5, or verses 2 through 5, look back. And so God says to Moses, I want you to remember what I have done in the past. 
Draw your attention back there and keep in mind what I have done and everything I've done in the past is consistent with my character. Look how verse 2 begins. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, right? He's putting his character on display. How? In what he has done in the past. Verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Four acts that God has done in the past. He appeared, he established his covenant, he heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant. Look back, Moses, and see what I have done. And when you look back to the past, don't stay there. Move into the present and then go right by the present and look into the future. This is what we find in verses 6 through 8. The same faithful God in the past will act in the future. Now look at verses 6 through 8, and I want you as I read this to make note of, and it might be good if you underline in your Bible, which is a great thing to do, to underline the seven times in these verses that the words I will are used. Verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, all of God's future acts here, all of these I will statements are bookended by his name. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Look at the end of verse 8. I am the Lord. And so God's character is revealed through his name so that Israel can know him and the people will come to know him and his name in a more significant, deeper, and fuller way by these actions that he's going to do. I will do this. And that's how you will know that I am the Lord. I mean, look back up at verse 3. I think this is wonderful. God says to Moses, look, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them in the past. He's the same God, but whatever it is that he's going to reveal in this name wasn't as clear back then. Now, through his actions, it's going to become more clear. So what is it about God's character that's going to become technicolor now and that they're going to see? Well, it's right in the middle of these I will future actions. And God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. To be redeemed is to be moved to be bought out of service of one master and into the service of another master. It's to move locations from enslavement in this situation to freedom 
and the service of a new master. I mean, this is the entire story of the book of Exodus. Redemption, rescue. From slavery to Pharaoh, from domination and misery under his authority, to worship in the tabernacle and the presence of God at the end of the book of Exodus. His people with him moving toward his place so that he can bless them and bless the nations. I mean, Exodus is a book and a story about a rival challenger to God's greatness that God destroys and then brings his people into a family, a covenantal relationship with him who then serve him in joy and satisfaction and friendship. Now, this whole section here and these these three ways to deal with challenges to God's greatness. Let's sort of tie all of this up. Remember, you will walk out into the world this afternoon and there will be challenges to God's character and his greatness. And they will come in all shapes and sizes. There will be people. There will be ideas. There will be movements. There will be devices. There will be circumstances that all seek to dethrone God in your life and take his place. They want to rule and reign in your heart instead of God. And so what do we do in response? I think verses 6 through 8 are so helpful. I will. Go back there. God promises to act on our behalf in the future, just like he has done in the past. I mean, it's him. Like, he's the one acting. He's the one doing. He doesn't say to Moses, okay, listen, if you really want to get out, you need to, there's like five things you've got to do here. Cross all the T's. Make sure you're detail-oriented, okay? That's, you've got to do all these. I will. I'm going to accomplish this. God is the one acting. And so I would say face any challenge to God's greatness by going back to the fact that he is the same redeeming God that he has always been. And he is at work in our lives today. This story took place a long time ago, but this is not distant history. God is not separate from us. He's not existing somewhere else and sort of occasionally turning the channel over to see what happens in our lives. He's intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. And he's the same God who does this sort of thing. He saves, he redeems, he renews, he restores. He wants to set things right, and he will accomplish his work. And so what I would say to you, to me, is you can trust his greatness to work this week. Why? Because he has acted in the past in a a much greater exodus even than what we see here. I mean, this is awesome, right? This book of Exodus, I hope you're starting to feel the weight of the redemption that God provides for the nation of Israel, but this doesn't hold a candle to the new Exodus and the redemption that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ to be bought out of slavery to sin and death and brought into God's family and given life and eternity with him, serving and worshiping and knowing him. There is no greater redemption that can be imagined And he has sent his son to accomplish that. And if that is true, then he is continuing to work in our lives today. Continuing to overcome rivals to who he is. I want to end this morning by reading Romans chapter 8. Because I think this 
helpfully draws our attention, not the whole chapter, just the end of it, to God's redemption of us and what he has purchased for us and how no challenge or rival to his great love for us can stand. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Like right now, he's interceding for us. This morning, for you, for this body here at Woodhaven Bible Church. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And now we've got some rivals, right? Some options that are thrown out there. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that... Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no challenge, no rival to God's love, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No challenge can stand. So let that be true in your heart. Rest in his supreme goodness and greatness. Let's pray. Father, we are so undeserving of all that you have done for us and all that you will do, Lord. We want to look back. We want to see what you have done, but we also want to anticipate and hope what you will do in the future, Lord. And we want, we want you to work. Holy Spirit, we want you to work in our lives. Draw our attention to you. Help us to put down rivals, to resist the challenges to your authority in our lives. Lord, we want to see you work in our church. We want to see the gospel go forth. We want to see people redeemed from sin and brought into a relationship with you. And you promise that you will build your church. And so we're, we're asking you for that, Lord, based on passages like this. And we're so thankful that you are the one who acts. It's not up to us. We don't have the ability, the strength, the merit, the goodness, or the wisdom but you do, Lord. And so we rest in that. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that he has done for us and that no rival can separate us from your love in him. May we, may we stay there in our thoughts and in our affections. We thank you for our time. It's in Christ's name we pray.